In 2011, a pastor released a video before his book was coming out. And in that video, he tells a story about an art show at his church. And a piece of art displayed at the church had a quote from Gandhi. And through the course of the art show, it was a very popular piece, but someone had actually put a note on the piece of art. And the note read, reality check, he is in hell. And in the video, the pastor responds to that situation and says, really? And you felt the need to tell people? And then he goes on to ask a lot more questions about that very difficult subject. He says, really? How do you know who's going where? And then he, then he asks the question behind the question, and he says, how could a God that we claim is good do such a thing? And there's really a, there's a huge negative reaction to that video. And a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of criticisms of the book came out before the book was published, which is not a good idea. Um, but, but if you're a Christian or not a Christian, wanting to know what the church teaches about this difficult question, why can't you ask questions? I think if you have questions about eternity, and Christians say that things about eternity are revealed to us through Scripture, you deserve the respect of answers, of hearing your questions out. So if you have asked questions about hell, about heaven, you deserve to be heard, to be listened to. But the one I think the one big problem with that book is that at one point the author says that we can't know the answers to those questions. And the frustrating thing about that is that Jesus actually does teach about the afterlife. And we should never claim to know more than Jesus teaches us, but we can teach his teachings. But I want to recognize that in the room, there's a lot of different backgrounds and stories about what you've heard about heaven, what you've heard about hell. And I just want to say at the front end um, that some of you might have grown up in church where that was the primary message. I mean, there was nothing about the kingdom of God or God's grace. It was about avoiding hell. And based on how often the preachers talked about it, you thought that that was what Jesus talked about all the time. But then— when you actually read the Gospels, you don't see it as much. But some of you didn't grow up in church, and you're thinking, look, I have no interest in a God that would do that kind of thing, that would create a place like hell. There's a, there's a comedian named uh, Rowan Atkinson, and he has this skit in which he welcomes people to hell. Um, it's ridiculous and kind of hilarious. He welcomes looters and pillagers and lawyers all in one group. Um, he, he groups the French and the Germans together, and he says, you'll have plenty to talk about and all the time you need to talk about it. Um, he, then he welcomes Christians, and he says, turns out the Jews were right. Um, I mean, it is, it is trying to get on, on people's nerves, but it's a really, it's a really funny video. And and, and some of you might be thinking, this is just ridiculous. How can Christians, in good faith, say that their God is both gracious 
and does this. I mean, you might just wave your hand at it and dismiss it. And some of you are thinking, look, I've been here for the past five weeks, and this, this sermon series has been called God's Empowering Presence. And it's all about the Holy Spirit. Did Mitch have a bad week? Like, like why is he talking about hell now? But I did not have a bad week. This is what this uh, passage is about. It's one of the very few passages that connects the Holy Spirit and hell. And I don't look forward to a Sunday like this. And I do still believe that there is uh, good news, but that in the same way that a doctor has to give a diagnosis, in addition to the medicine, this is the diagnosis. And, and the man who, who brings this message about hell and the Holy Spirit together is named John the Baptist. He's the kind of predecessor to Jesus, and he's preparing the way for him. He's the prophet with the news about the kingdom, and Jesus is the king. And he's not called John the Baptist because of like a denomination. It's not like there's Peter the Methodist and Mark the Anglican. Um, that joke is for two people who liked it. Uh, uh, if you laughed at that joke, you've been going to church too much. Uh, He's called the Baptist because he baptizes people. He immerses people in water. That's what baptism means. It's what it means, and it's a kind of purification process. And it was, it was an act that you, that you demonstrated to God saying, I'm turning away from my old life and turning towards you. I'm turning away from my sin and turning towards a life of holiness. And that act of baptism is like purification. And John says, that's what my baptism is. You get baptized into water, you, you turn away from your life of sin and, and towards a life of holiness. But, he says, the baptism of Jesus is different. It's not less than my baptism, it's more. He says, when you get baptized in Jesus' name, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of Jesus is like being plunged into the Holy Spirit. And, and, and fire is describing what that's like. And throughout Scripture, we actually see fire as a symbol of God's presence, that, that the prophets refer to God as a ref, of refining fire. And if you've been a Christian for five seconds, you know, you know that, that following Jesus following the Holy Spirit is not easy. It's like lifting weights. It burns. And so what, what John is saying is when the Holy Spirit starts to work on your life, he starts to purify your impurities. He sees the parts of your heart that are, that are messed up and, and that don't like uh, certain people and, and the parts of your life where you treat people uh, unkindly for no reason whatsoever. And the Holy Spirit sees that and burns that away. He burns that away because he's a purifying fire. But then, then John talks about this other fire multiple times. And he uses this, this image of farming that, we're, that we may not be familiar with. Um, I'm a city boy. I know nothing about farming. I had to do a lot of research to understand what this was. Um, so he, he uses this image of, of separating wheat from chaff. 
okay? And so a farmer would bring in all of the wheat and all of the casings of wheat. He would use this fork and kind of toss everything up into the air, and the, the chaff, which is lighter, would separate because the wind would kind of take it. And so the farmer would do this over and over and over again and separate these two things, one that he wants and one that he doesn't. And you might think, okay, this is just so random. Why is, why is John bringing this up? I mean, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit or with, with Jesus? But Jesus uses the same exact image to talk about the final judgment. Jesus himself uses those same terms. He says, let the wheat and the weeds grow together, but later when the harvest comes, I will sort weeds out and burn them. And he keeps using this image over and over and over again. And so it's not like John brings up this image of judgment and Jesus comes around later and says, what did John say about me? Like, I can't believe it. I mean, he must have been really angry out in the, out in the wilderness because that is not my teaching. No, J Jesus confirms this. J God will sort us. There's no, there's, not, there's no middle ground or in between. And without a connection, it's kind of hard to make sense. Like, why does, why does John jump from this kind of incredible image of the Holy Spirit purifying us and making us better, and then this hellfire and brimstone? But I, I think one theologian uses this image that really helped me understand it, okay? His name's Isaac the Syrian. And he described the image of the afterlife as like a classroom, which to some of our college students, you may think that sounds like hell already. Um, but, but Isaac says it's like a classroom and God is the perfect teacher. And everyone will end up in this classroom. But the students who love him, who worship him, who respect him, who adore God, will always want to be at his feet learning. But the student who finds God boring or frustrating or, or hates God won't like that. We'll all see God face to face, but if you love God, you will enjoy eternity with him. But if you don't enjoy God, you won't enjoy eternity with him. And the, and the point is, that this isn't like there are two bad options and we try to pick one that's better than the other. There's this famous theologian named Pascal who, who says, we should make this wager, right? And he says, okay, look, you've got four options. He says, if you believe in God and you're right, you, you'll gain heaven. You'll gain everything. If you believe in God and you're wrong, you have nothing to lose. If you don't believe in God and you're right, there's nothing to gain because there's no heaven anyway. But if you don't believe in God and you're wrong, that's the fourth thing. You have everything to lose. And so Pascal, he kind of treats it like an equation, just wager on God. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. But John isn't saying that. He's not comparing these two, two things and pick the lesser of two evils. He's saying, when you are immersed into the Holy Spirit, you will become better. You will be made holy like he is holy. But if you reject it, if you reject it, there's this other fire. I mean, this is like inheriting uh, this huge estate from the wealthiest person who ever lived or choosing garbage. There is no comparison for John. 
One theologian I read uh, said he didn't know what hell was like, but he'll, he's sure that Twitter will be mandatory. Um, and, and I think th this is kind of what we're choosing between. We're not choosing between uh, two almost close options. There's no contest. What John is saying is there's this good life you can live by following the Holy Spirit who will purify you and something incomparably worse. Now, I want to back up for a second because some of you are probably thinking, man, this, I, I just don't know about this guy who's, who's, who just wants to focus on this aspect of, of Christian teaching. And I, and I agree with you. I think that some Christians way overdo it. It seems like they almost relish in it. Um, some of you may have known of the author uh, Christopher Hitchens. He was, he was an atheist, and he was hilarious. He's a really wry and witty writer, and his dislike for God and the church is like at the max, okay? And, but I loved reading his stuff. Within 36 hours—this is not a joke. This is a true story. Within 36 hours of his death, there were Christian pastors writing articles online about his likely destination in hell. 36 hours. I mean, his loved ones, his family and friends, are still grieving his loss. How dare us as Christians to consign people, especially when Jesus' whole message is that he is the judge and we are not. The church actually has often honored certain saints, like St. Teresa or St. Catherine or St. Thomas Aquinas. We don't have a list of the damned, okay? We don't list people's names because the Bible teaches us that, we, that the Lord wants all to be saved. We should hope to the very last moments of every single person's life that they turned, and we should not pretend to know people's hearts. That is the Lord's job, not ours. And while I think we can overdo it, and I, I want to uh, teach against that, I think this is actually really important, and I think there's good news in this sermon. Because there's this author named Joshua Ryan Butler who writes this book called Skeletons in God's Closet, which is just a good title. And one of the, par one of the parts of the book is dedicated to this teaching— and, and sometimes he says, Christians like to think that the Bible is all about these two realities, hell and heaven, and the winners get heaven and the losers get hell. But that's not actually what Scripture is all about. In the beginning, what does God create? The heavens and the earth. And in the, begin, in, in the end, God will make new heavens and new earth. The story of Scripture is that sin splits heaven and earth. And God, what God wants to do is reunite them. So a better way to see God's judgment or God's wrath, which are just really unpopular terms these days, is to see that God is going to take the hell out of earth. He's not going to allow evil in the end. Hell is God's quarantine zone for sin's destructive power. Uh, if any of you have read C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote a book called The Great Divorce in which a man dreams about heaven, and he has this heavenly guide to kind of teach him about what's going on. And the man asks, like many of us, 
I mean, what's the point? What's the point of hell? Why would God make a place like that? And his guide says this. He says, if hell weren't there, the loveless and self-imprisoned could blackmail the universe. It must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. In the end, Jesus will totally conquer evil, suffering, darkness, and death. And to do that, he quarantines this, this source of destruction off to the side. But you may think, look, but, but why would God punish some and not others? Don't, don't Christians say that all of us are sinful and all of us are unjust to some degree? And you're totally right. We are. But I think it's really important to talk about and, and focus on our, all, our own role in our own judgment. Because God's judgment of us fits our self-destruction. And let me, let me use an image from a very unpopular book that I think gets at this really well, okay? So I've, I reread uh, parts of Dante's Inferno. And, it, and if you read that book, you just think, gosh, he depicts God as coming up with like these creative punishments for people. But I, I think it actually gets at the point of God's judgment really well. Because when, when the main character of the book reaches the deepest part of hell, he sees Satan half buried in ice. And it's really counterintuitive. Like, why, why would Dante make hell cold? But Satan, buried in ice, is trying to use his wings to escape on his own terms. But the wings are freezing hell over. And I think Dante's point is that we do this to ourselves. We don't reach out to God. We don't ask for his salvation. We want to save ourselves. And what that ensures is our own destruction. And you've probably seen this in some sort of way in your own life. Have you ever been so self-reliant that it's destroyed you? That it's hurt relationships? Well, this is that on a larger scale. Hell is like putting chains on your hands, swallowing the key, and ignoring the person trying to free you. And so, look, I need to admit, this, the, this teaching is just, uh, it's just not popular. I, and myself, I was not looking forward to today because of this. And I know that there are Christians who in good faith disagree with me. Um, during the week, Ben came by with a book and kind of set it on my office and said, you should read this before Sunday. Um, and his point was that in good faith, he disagreed with me. And the book is by Edward Fudge, a guy who actually grew up in Churches of Christ. And his, his book is very aptly titled, The Fire That Consumes. And his idea, his understanding of Scripture is that when people are sent to hell, it's not some kind of torment. Um, they just simply cease to exist. And I think that's an understandable way of reading Scripture. Um, and I think Christians in good faith can disagree. But let me focus just on one term uh, that's a little bit different than hell, but very important. And it's the word judgment. Because at the end of the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus will come back 
and judge the living and the dead. And Christians have believed that for a very long time. And the reason why I find a source of comfort in that is that Jesus will end injustice. He will not let it go on forever. I mean, recently the entertainment mogul Harvey Weinstein was rightly outed for his years of abuse. But he pales in comparison to some of the worst evils in human history. I mean, there have been governments who have caused famines in other countries as an act of war. What if God just shrugged his shoulders at that? What if God ignored that? Wouldn't we be right in saying, why don't you listen to the cries of victims of injustice? But the Bible constantly portrays a God who loves us so much that he cares about injustice. If you remember the first story of murder in the Bible, it's not between strangers, it's not an act of war, it's between brothers. And the older brother kills the younger brother and then says, am I my brother's keeper? He acts like it doesn't even matter, like it's not even his responsibility to care. But God, God in that story, do you remember what he says? He says, Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. And a God who cares, who hears the cries of so many people who have faced injustice, is a good God. He is a loving God who cares about the homeless in our city, who cares about those facing famines across the world. God cares and he hears those cries. And in the end, in the end, I take comfort in the fact that God will not let injustice go on forever. God takes sin and evil seriously enough to protect the new heavens and new earth from it. In the end, God will be loving and just. God will be just and loving. I want to end on a quote from a Russian novelist um, who just puts it better than I could. He says this, In the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that we've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Let's pray. Father, we are uncomfortable about some of the teachings about judgment in Scripture. And we don't want to lose sight of the grand story that in the beginning you made the, new, the heavens and the earth, and in the end you will renew the heavens and the earth. You will make a new creation. You will wipe every tear away from our eyes. But that comes with judgment. And so we pray for a holy reverence, a respect for what you reveal to us in Scripture. And we pray for humility and pray that we would never, never pretend to be the judge in your place. And that we would hope, like you do, that all would be saved. 
We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.